Greetings and salutations, and welcome to This Ends at Prom. A coming-of-age podcast highlighting cinema about or marketed towards teen girls. I'm one of your hosts, BJ Colangelo, and I'm joined by my wife. Harmony Colangelo, a trans woman who grew up watching none of these movies. Is today's movie a queen bee? Or are we killing the teen dream? Get in, loser. We're analyzing the movies people make fun of us for loving. Twice as hard for the same motherfucking title, but I realize that I probably won't be so Death has come to your little podcast prom party. Evil dies never. <laughs> it never dies. It doesn't even die in this movie because <laughs> the second one's the same night. <laughs> it's time for the best part of the year. It's spooky season. And you're very, very excited to be doing this one. I'm so excited to be doing this one. We've been holding this one off for a while, but obviously with the Blumhouse Halloween ends coming out, there's no better time for us to finally tackle John Carpenter's 1978 perfection, Halloween. And I want to open this episode with the sort of prerequisite that we will be talking about just this Halloween. Correct. Because... The Halloween timeline is a hot mess. Mm -hmm. They retcon many things about this movie in subsequent movies. Multiple times, yes, yes. And also, most of the Halloween movies are bad. <laughs> Especially the most recent one. <laughs> we are not going to reignite your hatred for Halloween kills. But yes, we are going to be talking about Halloween 1978 in a vacuum. So that means discussions of like, oh, but it's Lori's brother. Like, no, we're not going there. Like, we're talking about this movie in a vacuum because otherwise it gets really convoluted and really ridiculous and... This is also the most teen girl movie of the entire franchise. Mm -hmm. This changed everything. This changed history. And mm -hmm. so obviously that's what we're going to be focusing on. So Halloween is obviously a classic. Mm -hmm. But I am curious if you can remember your first experience with Halloween. So we actually had like we, we sort of were trying to unpack this while we were rewatching it for the podcast. And. The best I can figure is that I would have seen it at probably seven years old, possibly. Um, it was before H2O came out because I had seen this one and the second one by the time I had seen that one. Mm -hmm. So uh, I was fairly young. And I don't know. I First of all, never found Michael Myers scary. He was just kind of a guy. Mm -hmm. And also, it's weird for me to think that he's ever been anything other than a full-ass man. Like, in this movie, mm -hmm. he's, like, 24 or something. Yeah. But, like, no, in my brain, that man is, like, 40. <laughs> he's just perpetually middle-aged. Basically, yeah, he's just a normal, full-grown man. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> I am older, like, considerably older than Michael Myers in this movie, and that's weird to think about. <laughs> 
Yeah, Halloween for me is a very seminal film. It is one of the earliest horror movies that I can remember watching. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would have been about six, I believe, uh, five or six. And it was playing on AMC's Fear Fest. That's and where I saw it. And I knew that I wanted to watch it. I saw all the ads for it. Because my mom would talk about, oh, I love this movie. I love Halloween. My mom's big one is Nightmare on Elm Street. Like, that is her jammy jam. But Mm -hmm. Halloween, I think, is a close second. And I just remember seeing the visual of Michael Myers on the phone um, after he's, you know, killed Linda. And that was just burned into my brain. And I needed to know more. And it was making me kind of crazy that I Mm -hmm. didn't know who this was, what was going on, what's happening. So my mom had made me a deal and was like, okay, we'll go trick-or-treating. If we can get back by, you know, this time when the movie starts, you can watch Halloween with me. You can stay up late and eat candy, but, like, we have to be back at this time. So that meant that I was about to lose an hour of trick-or-treating time, which as a kid, you know, like, that's an hour of less candy. There are kids in this movie who are trick-or-treating for like four hours. Yeah, it's wild. These kids are trick-or-treating for like six hours in the movie. <laughs> it is like you just got home from school and then hours later it is pitch black and there are still kids trick-or-treating. Uh-huh. But yeah, so I, I sacrificed an hour of trick-or-treating time to come home and watch Halloween and I was glued to the screen. I thought it was so scary and so cool and I was just obsessed with it. And it's definitely one of those movies that helped ignite my love of horror. I was always around it. My mom watched a lot of it. So mm-hmm. I saw a lot of it. But that's one of the ones where I watched it and was like, wow. <laughs> I love that. I think it's so fun that like you were scared as a small child of Michael Myers in this. And I was just like, he's just a guy in a jumpsuit <laughs> with a mask. Because I, I, at no age, like, I saw Jaws at, a, at, like, four years old, and pretty much from then onward, I don't get scared of horror movies anymore. Yeah, you are kind of an enigma in that really nothing scares you. Like, jump scares don't get you, creeping dread doesn't get you, like, you're just, you just don't get scared. Yeah. Whereas I get scared of everything because I have a producer adrenaline, and I like that feeling. It's a, it's a good sensation. That's, it's, for me, it's like riding a roller coaster. I get the same sort of chemical response to it. Um, Do you you also get barfy? (laughs) Sometimes. Because that's how I am when I ride a lot of roller coasters. I mean, I got barfy when we watched Host because that movie is just nothing but jump scares and it kept skyrocketing my adrenaline and Mm -hmm. it made me ill because I had too much chemical in my body. Yeah. Um, But speaking of like Michael Myers being scary as a kid, I think another reason that he stuck with me for so long is because uh, we had someone in in my town that we just called Michael Myers guy mm-hmm. because every Halloween he would dress like Michael Myers and he had a good mask. And that is a distinction because there's a lot of really shitty Michael Myers masks yeah, out there in this franchise even. Yeah, for real. Um, but he had a really good mask. He had a really good costume and he would just find a street during trick or treating and just stand there mm-hmm. and stare at you and tilt his head at you. He didn't chase people. He didn't like really follow people. He just kind of did his own thing And no one knew who it was. Like, obviously, I'm sure somebody knew who it was, but no one knew who it was. It wasn't like it was common knowledge. Like, oh, that's, you know, Johnny Turner in this outfit. He does it every year. Like, just a lot of people didn't know. Like, Mm -hmm. if you didn't know the guy personally, you had no idea that it was him. Yeah. And so it was a thing growing up is you kind of knew, like, oh, no, am I going to turn down the street trick-or-treating and Michael Myers is going to be there? 
And it was like just this constant threat that kind of loomed over everything and it made it all the more exciting and kind of turned him into a weird urban legend folk character even in our real life even though i knew he was from a movie mm-hmm. because i don't know that guy i don't know that guy in that mask <laughs> but if he's willing to do this every halloween he's got to be kind of weird <laughs> it's the 90s we're post copycat killers and scream you never know <laughs> but like before we re- like there's a lot of things about that that i really want to unpack as far as like the constant menace of michael myers just being around mm-hmm. and like the urban legend ism of it all but like i actually want to want to pull this back just a little bit and talk about like watching horror movies on like AMC during mm-hmm. Halloween season. Cause that was a big deal in a way that like I don't I don't know how long it hasn't been. Yeah, and I mean there's something that has been so lost in the pivot from cable to streaming, because with the exception of something like Shutter, which I am so grateful for, where I open the Shutter app. And they're just playing a horror movie. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's something I've seen. Sometimes it's something I've never heard of in my life. But it's just there. And I can choose to keep watching. Or I can, you know, go to their other offerings and find something else. The extremely curated and genre-specific categories. Yes. In every conceivable way. Yes. (laughs) Um, If you don't have Shudder and you like horror, what are you doing? It's also extremely affordable. So... There's there's that for you, but also we're gonna be like on Shutter. I know. Month. So like, yeah, yeah, actually pay attention to our morning announcements because there's some information there for you. But uh, yeah, like there was something really special about AMC kind of telling you this is what you're gonna watch tonight and you're gonna be scared of it. And there's something really exciting about that, especially mm-hmm. when you're a kid and you haven't had a lot of horror exposure yet. Yeah. It was something to look forward to. And like I would watch these commercials and see these images and just be fascinated and drawn in and like really, really want to know like what is that? What is that? And that kind of doesn't exist anymore. Like it does in some senses. Like if you go to Netflix or something and you're scrolling through, you might see an image where you're like, oh wow, that's incredible. It'll start autoplaying literally every movie for you. I turn that setting <laughs> off, don't worry. Um, but the problem is that because the algorithm also curates those images a perfect example is the friday the 13th remake that they did it doesn't show jason on the on the little thumbnail because we watch so many teen movies the thumbnail of it is like three teen girls in like pink 2000s era tops like that's all it is i would have (laughs) just hanging out and it's like i would have no idea that that is a Friday the 13th movie if I'm just, like, scrolling through images. Like, that does nothing to tell me what movie this is because they're like, oh, you watch a lot of teen movies. Here's three teen girls on the cover because I bet that will entice you to watch this. And mm-hmm. it's like, but that's very misleading, Netflix. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually have a lot of history with the Halloween franchise because of AMC and because of Halloween, like, marathons during mm-hmm. October. Um, and like, I think that's how a lot of people kind of were introduced to these franchises is through like, Hey, we're showing every single Friday, the 13th movie all day because it's October, but also they're edited. So (laughs) your, your first exposure to this is a very palatable version of this, like of, of, of this series. Mm -hmm. And I found it very intoxicating despite not fully understanding a lot of it, Mm -hmm. despite not being scared of it, 
there was this this thrill where I'm like, I literally have to digest as much of this as humanly possible in one month before November inevitably comes mm-hmm. and locks it away for like 11 months again. Mm-hmm. And the closest thing you get to a horror movie is like something that my dad would like where it's like, yeah, we'll show Jaws year round. Mm-hmm. It was almost like an event. It's probably It's probably one reason that I love like specific time locked events like shark week Mm -hmm. where i'm like yeah no it's special then because especially in our current age of streaming you can put on pretty much anything you want anytime you want but being like eight years old you couldn't do that especially because the video stores like we didn't have a blockbuster we didn't have like a hollywood video in my hometown Mm -hmm. and our drug mart didn't carry any movie that was older than a couple years at at whatever point it would have been so Anything before, like, 1995, they didn't have it. Mm-hmm. And by that point, it's like, yeah, we got, we've got we got H2O. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no <laughs> one's favorite, no one's fourth favorite Halloween movie. <laughs> it's, I don't know, it just, there's something very, very special about the exposure of that to me. So, I like, I have so much love for the Halloween movies, despite not actually enjoying most of them. <laughs> because, like, they were special. They, they were the premier slasher franchise that would get played so much during the season because of the name, obviously. Of course. Because of the setting, because of the theming. Yes. It all, it all, it fit the perfect visual ambiance of what you want a spooky movie to look like. Absolutely. And I think that that aspect of it is also a major reason why the franchise has remained so popular and so beloved and why it does keep getting remade over and over and over again is because people can't get enough of this story because John Carpenter and Deborah Hill distilled something really magical when they made Halloween and we'll obviously get into that. But if somehow you have never seen Halloween or don't know what it is, which I would love to meet you because how have you missed this massive part of pop culture Mm -hmm. um even people i know who've never even seen halloween because they're scared of it uh they actually know what it's about so i'm always curious when people have no idea what it's about Mm -hmm. but the fandango synopsis very very simple an escaped masked killer stalks a babysitter and her friends on halloween yes yep that's it (laughs) yeah no no complaints yeah that's that's precisely what this movie is yeah it's the night he came home Mm -hmm. (laughs) which like when we were rewatching this i was being such a freaking a-hole because anytime they said any kind of thing that's been referenced in the decades since i would point the screen and just be like an insufferable horror bro about that's the tagline for the movie yeah you were being they said ben tramer i love ben tramer you were being so obnoxious it was really funny (laughs) but it was like oh i know too many people that do this shit oh my god well especially because like we rewatched it just because it's like okay we're gonna re contextualize watching this in terms of like watching it for the podcast instead of just watching it to watch it Mm -hmm. and i think this is probably the movie i have seen the most out of any movie we've ever covered on the show i think the same goes for me actually like i was thinking about it i was like have i seen halloween more than i've seen jones and the pussycats or grease 2 and the answer is, yeah, I think I have. I think I've seen Halloween more than anything else that we've talked about. Scream might be up there, but Halloween I've been watching since I was a child. Yes. So I think Halloween takes takes that cake. Yeah. So like I was allowed. There's room to have fun with it. <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing I'm going to notice that I haven't seen before. <laughs> <laughs> so before we dive in any deeper, it is time for everyone's favorite part of the show. 
Welcome to the morning announcements. As a reminder, you can support the show on Patreon, patreon.com backslash this ends at prom. Over at our Patreon, we offer things like our schedule ahead of time, wonderful playlists curated by Harmony, our Sadie Hawkins dance episodes focusing on teen boy movies, and we are currently going through our TV homecoming series through Pen15. We offer a free bonus episode every month for our subscribers at only $1. If now is not the right time to support financially, we totally understand. All we ask is that if you love the show, you send us to a friend, you give us a five-star review wherever it is you get your podcasts, and you tag us on social media, hashtag thisendsatprom or at thisendsatprom. As we enter into spooky season, I know that you must be dying for more of Harmony and I to talk about all things horror. Well, you can do that. Get yourself a subscription to Shudder. It is like Netflix for horror movies, but so much better and way cheaper. It is the best time to get it, the reason for the season, especially because Harmony and I are both featured in Queer for Fear, The History of Queer Horror. It is a new docuseries from Brian Fuller of Hannibal fame, and it is all about the history of queer horror. Check us and so many brilliant, wonderful minds and some of your absolute favorites. You're all going to freak out and scream when you see some of the people in this doc, I swear. But it is released on Shudder every week. Give it a look. All right, so normally this is my segment where we talk about historical context at the time of a film's release, but you can pretty easily wrap up what teen films looked like in 1978, which is you have, like, sex comedies, Grease, and horror movies. Mm-hmm. Not really much else. Like, you get the occasional, like, loosey-goosey thing, like, oh, fucking American graffiti. But, like, that's also the start of the decade. So... Because we're talking about an extremely revered and landmark film in the horror genre, I'm turning it over to the person in the room who is basically a scholar. Oh, thank you. Pretty much a historian. Oh, you're so kind. The smartest person that I have ever met and can put anybody else to shame when it comes to anything. That's very sweet. And I think you should meet more people then. (laughs) Nah. Even with brain damage, you're smarter than like every other horror fan. (laughs) This is very nice. I'm feeling very affirmed and having lots of serotonin made right now. Thank you. You're welcome. So with all of that said, BJ, would you like to give us some historical context for Halloween? Let's fucking go. This is my... Oh, yeah, let's fucking go? This is my time to shine. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, so Halloween is cited by many people as being, like, the start of the slasher genre, and that is not entirely true, but it's also not entirely false. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is that if we look at the history of slashers, there are two big ones that sort of laid the groundwork, and that's Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho and the movie Peeping Tom. Both of those films are sort of the groundwork for slashers. They don't quite follow the rules, quote-unquote, that we use for slashers, but a lot of those early elements are there. The third one that comes on there, the one that I often cite as the start of the slasher boom, Mm -hmm. is uh, Bob Clark's 
Black Christmas, a film we will be talking about later this year as we hit our third Black Christmas. The uh, third and potentially final Black yeah. Christmas, we will see. <laughs> There's always the risk that another remake is going to show up somewhere. God, it's, as long as it's closer to 2019 and way less like 2006. Yes, yes, Then yes. I will be significantly happier. <laughs> um, so yeah, Black Christmas to me sort of starts the slasher trend. Um, we also have Texas Chainsaw Massacre in there. And Texas Chainsaw Massacre in my opinion, becomes a slasher later on in the franchise. The first film to me is far more of kind of like the 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 rural redneck creepy people that we, you know your, you also your see hills have your eyes hills have eyes type. like yeah it's more your more last of that house on the left yeah well, so, last last house on the left is a rape revenge movie but I know but it's a lot more scummy it feels a lot more like an exploitation film than yes. a slasher film as we recognize them yes like if any of you saw like Ty West's X this year like that is the the form of a slasher film that Texas Chainsaw kind of brought up mm-hmm. but in terms of the slasher film in the way that they became extremely popular and the way that they were then repeated and remade and ripped off for until now, currently mm-hmm. still doing it. Some 45 years later. Yeah, it's Halloween. It's John Carpenter's Halloween. So I would say like, you know, Black Christmas and Texas Chainsaw, like they kind of like invented the the genre. Halloween perfected it. Halloween did the version of the slasher that we would come to accept as like the every trope of the slasher in the 80s correct um i asked i actually asked you when we were watching i'm like has any movie ever been ripped off as many times as halloween i and the thing is at first i was like you know maybe jaws because like there's a lot of animals run amok and you know creepy animal things but just by quantity no like halloween is the one so many slasher movies are just trying to recapture the magic of Halloween, Mm -hmm. including other slasher films that are considered like, you know, the Mount Rushmore of slashers. Like that's a big part of it. Like they're all trying to to do what Halloween did. Um, Like ripoff's not a dirty word for the record. No, Casey Munchkin is far better than the Atari Pac-Man for an era appropriate (laughs) reference. But like, I don't know. It's just, it's really fascinating to think about how significant this film is and how it made everything seem so easy that everyone went, yeah, we can do this. And clearly most of them couldn't. Well, until Blair Witch came around, the first Blair Witch Project, um, Halloween was the most profitable independently made film in history. And mm-hmm. it, what's funny is that the person that then dethroned uh, Blair Witch is Paranormal Activity. So that's why horror is such a beloved genre and is such a formative part of cinema because it is consistently prolific and profitable. More mm-hmm. importantly, you can make a horror movie for very little money and bring home massive profits. Mm-hmm. It's been proven time and time again. Um, so because of that success, Halloween became, you know, the the formula. Mm-hmm. And what Halloween did that was so different than everything that came before it is that it stopped putting horror in something that you could distance yourself from. Because even with something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, we are in rural Texas. It is a farmhouse. It is far away just from civilization. Don't go to Leatherface's house. Don't go to Leatherface's house, exactly. He's just defending the homestead. <laughs> he doesn't hunt people. That's something the sequels don't understand. <laughs> and then you get to uh, you know something like Black Christmas, and Black Christmas is set at a sorority house. And sorority houses have like a very 
complicated history within American culture because there are some people that view them as like there are some states where like you can't have sorority houses because Mm -hmm. if you have more than five women that aren't related to each other living under one roof it's considered a brothel yes well it's also like the sequestered part of like a college town which college towns are already their own unique thing in American life exactly and then it's like well there's you know Greek row or whatever right and in your in your brain it's like oh well these are all young people they're getting into trouble they're doing all these things there's sort of this air of like oh they're asking for it, which obviously is super problematic and is rooted in rape culture. Mm-hmm. We're talking generally here about like why people feel a certain kind of way about sorority houses. Mm-hmm. John Carpenter took the horror of the other, the horror of the home invasion, the horror of a lot of things, and put it in suburbia, mm-hmm. in the in the places where they talk about, oh, this would never happen in a town like ours. It's happening in a town like yours. Like, John Carpenter knew that there was just as much nefarious horror going on in these picturesque neighborhoods all across America. And, you know, the 70s is also a time where, like, stranger danger is happening. Like, all of these serial killers that we can't stop making fucking documentaries about and Mm -hmm. weird, you know, adaptations of their stories. Like, that's the 70s, baby. Stranger danger. Like, Bundy and Gacy were pretty much, like, apprehended or finishing up their sprees in 78. Like, high-profile stuff like this, which really had only existed in a few isolated incidences, like your H.H. Holmes or your Ed Gein, who obviously had a huge influence on horror and, regrettably, trans culture Mm -hmm. (laughs) against our will. But this is where it's starting to intersect. Now it's Mm -hmm. not like... Oh, a horror hotel or, you know, the rural redneck. This or is like, Count Dracula's castle. <laughs> yes, these are people now coming into your neighborhoods. They've been there the whole time. Who'd have thought? This is like the exact same period that you would see even referred to in like the black phone this year. Mm-hmm. Because this was such a pivotal part of American culture in terms of its fear. Yeah, because what Halloween does that is so incredible is that it brought the horror to a place that people felt was safe because we're getting a lot of white flight during this time period as well, Mm -hmm. where white families are leaving the cities and moving into the suburbs because they're viewing the cities as dangerous. Like that's where the drugs are. Mm -hmm. That's where the gangs are. That's where all of like the sex work is, is in the cities. It's dangerous in the cities. It's not dangerous in the suburbs. And John Carpenter was like, "Eh, fuck you. No, like we're not doing that. Your gateless gated communities are not safe. Exactly. And that shook up America and like terrified them because now we're sort of taking this urban legend of like babysitter killers or, you know, people leaving hooks on the the side of your car door, all of these sorts of urban legends that are Mm -hmm. really rooted in teenagedom is being presented on screen and like all of those fears are now affirmed like oh that that mystery story you heard where something bad happened on this night in this house that's your neighborhood now yeah like the opening 10 minutes of halloween is so good at setting up very specific american fears where yeah. it's, it's like okay you have a creepy child mm-hmm. you have a creepy clown killer mm-hmm. as a, as a child mm-hmm. you have mental institutions you have like carjacking later on you have someone in like the back seat of the car it's all of these urban legends and fears that are specific to like this country that like i find really really fascinating because it does it like so effortlessly you better hurry up how can you 
walking to school this way. My dad asked me to. Why? I have to drop off a key. Why? Because he's going to sell a house. Why? Because that's his job. Where? The Myers house. The Myers house? You're not supposed to go up there. Yes, I am. Yeah, you're totally right. And it presents all of these horrors that we all have, but we feel safe from because, oh, that's that would never happen here. Mm-hmm. And it puts them here. And that's what makes it so scary. And we see that it's like the fear is not just Michael Myers, too. That's the thing I think people forget about is that when Laurie Strode is running asking for help in her neighborhood, she ends up on someone's front porch and they turn the lights off on her. Mm-hmm. They don't want to deal with this. They close the blinds. That's your problem. That's not mine. Like they really take not just all of the urban legend, like boogeyman stories we've all heard, but also presents them in a way that's like, hey, and guess what? You're you're so-called, like you said, gateless gated community you've got here they don't care about you either because american individualism is also going to be the death of you uh-huh. like this movie is so fucking smart like oh they're so they're so brilliant it's infuriating mm-hmm. so we're obviously going to probably jump around a lot with this because this is a seminal piece of work there's a lot to discuss here mm-hmm. but for what we do on this podcast i really do want to talk about specifically the teenage girl isms of it all. So we're going to start obviously with the final girl, the scream queen, Jamie Lee motherfucking Curtis. How do you feel about Laurie Strode in this movie? First of all, um, it is so good to see Jamie Lee Curtis back on this podcast since I don't think we've seen her since the third episode. <laughs> I know. <laughs> she, Jamie Lee Curtis is another one that's probably going to be a sleeper for showing up in here a lot because she did a ton of horror movies in, in her early years. But uh, yeah, we haven't seen her since Freaky Friday. Yeah. BJ, I don't want to do Terror Train. We're not doing Terror Train. I'll never make you do Terror Train. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, I mean, she's Jamie Lee Curtis. She's great. She's the ultimate mom face hottie. Mm-hmm. Um, she's She's the nice girl. She's mm-hmm. the kind of boring girl. She mm-hmm. is the trope that, like, the virginal final girl is built around. Mm-hmm. And I love Laurie Strode because Laurie Strode, to me, is the friend that you're so thankful that you have. Mm-hmm. Because, like, Annie, she's fine. Linda, she's a live wire. Oh, I, I, we're talking about Linda next. <laughs> yes, yeah, okay, we'll talk about Linda next. But Laurie is... She's got good intentions. She's responsible. She's respectful. But at the same time, she's also not like judgmental of her friends. Like she's not no. a prude who's like, you really shouldn't be doing that. That's gross. She's just like, all right, have fun. Do she's, what you want to do. She's just responsible. Yeah. She's like, I got to babysit these kids. Like Annie even jokes at one point about how Lori never goes out. She's like, you must have a small fortune from all the babysitting you do. You know what? I'm not going to knock that. No. Good for you, Lori. Have that money. So then when everybody's struggling, when they get out of high school, you'll be fine. <laughs> mm-hmm. And also one of the things I relate to about Laurie Strode is that in terms of her being the babysitter, like they dump a child on her mid-movie that she was not prepared for. Mm-hmm. But like 
she has this feeling that like I relate to, which is like, well, if I don't do it, it doesn't get done. Yes. <laughs> yes. She has a lot of that energy. And so something that I got in a lot of arguments about when I was in college. So when I was in college and I took a ton of like film theory classes, mm-hmm. one of them was on the history of the American horror film. And of course we watch Halloween because duh. Mm-hmm. And I remember we had to write an essay where we were talking about like why it is that Michael Myers targets Laurie Strode. And I'm going to put on my like hipster <laughs> glasses for this one because like 80% of the people in my class wrote about like, well, they're siblings. And it's like, that's not established in this movie yep. at all. That's not a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's clear that they didn't pay attention. The reason that Michael Myers targets Laurie Strode is because she goes to drop off that paperwork packet at the house because her parents are selling the house and Michael is in the house. So she he sees her playing that like, quote unquote, prank on Tommy, pretending like, oh, the boogeyman's going to get me. So she's like disrespecting his house and his family. And now he's mad. Like, that's what's happening. She doesn't deserve it by any stretch of the imagination. But like whenever people are like, it's so weird that he targeted her. And like, why is he stalking her through the whole movie? Because she fucked with his house and he's petty. (laughs) I don't know what to tell you. It's very, uh, it's very, very Leatherface, but he's a lot more proactive and patient about it. Yes. He's very like one track minded about this. He's like, oh, you're going to talk shit on my house. Well, from now you have to die. I mean, we've already established through like 15 years of him being locked up. He's very patient. Yes, he, he has the time. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I love Lori because, you know, she is responsible and it does then turn Halloween into a morality play, uh-huh. which like obviously John Carpenter is not like a weirdo conservative. Um, He's actually very progressive. God, I love John Carpenter. If you have Especially never, lately. Oh, my God. If you have <laughs> never read an interview with John Carpenter where he ta- he like gets on a tangent and starts talking about politics. It's incredible. Um, There's an interview that he did with a rapper from like 2017 and they talk about They Live and he basically is like, They Live is my big fuck you to Reagan. He ruined everything. Fuck that guy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Incredible. I I love like, here's the thing, John Carpenter, arguably the greatest filmography of any filmmaker. Oh, there's so much to choose from. It's so varied. All of it's fun. All of it's like, like, you could, if you, like, his worst films are fine. Yeah. Like, that's how good he is. That man has earned the right to be a crotchety old man. I saw a video of him recently where he was, like, I don't know, like, hanging out with horror people and just being invited in a room with all, all the geniuses. You, you know, your Aronofsky's and your Eli Roth. You all have fun. I don't want to be here. I'm going to go home. <laughs> yeah, I love John Carpenter. Just let that man play video games, make music, and watch basketball and leave him, him the fuck alone. <laughs> God, he's, he's earned it. <laughs> he's great. I love him so much. Um, but yeah, so like, it's so strange that this, the, that this movie also unintentionally sort of sparked this weird, like, Reagan era morality of like you have to be the virgin, you have to be the good girl, you have to be all these things, and like that those are not belief systems that he holds. No, that's just what accidentally happened. Well, it it's only becomes a trend because it was repeated. Mm-hmm. This movie is not responsible for like the actions of everyone who has ever come afterwards and every character they've ever written as a result. Exactly. Like this movie as an ecosystem, like you can judge Lori, you can judge Halloween based purely on itself. Because it's not following trends. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right, and uh, yeah. So I love Lori. I think that I think that she's great. I also love that she is a final girl who 
sort of survives out of instinct, which I think is really good. Mm-hmm. Um, we haven't met the Nancy Thompsons of Nightmare on Elm Street yet, people who are like proactive in planning. Mm-hmm. Uh, Laurie Strode is just kind of winging it and yeah. making it work and well, surviving. That's the thing compared to later Final Girls in a lot of really popular instances is that there's an evolution of them because there's an evolution of the movie-going viewer and what they expect. You have to raise the stakes. You can't have right. Nancy, even like five, six years later, be functioning like Laurie. Right. Because this subgenre of horror has already evolved so much in that half a decade. Mm-hmm. No, you're totally right. Um, so yes, that is that is our Laurie. She is lovely. Jamie Lee Curtis forever. I love her so much. She's She's the best. Let's talk about Linda, PJ Souls, and your hair. Welcome back to the show. Oh my God, I love PJ Souls. I we're only gonna probably get to talk to her maybe like a handful of times. Mm-hmm. I think she's great in everything I ever see her in. I love seeing her in her beautiful giant hair that I don't understand and I'm jealous of. And also, I fucking love Linda. Yes. Um. So of all of the characters in Halloween, I think Linda's the one I relate to the right. most. Like, I was just like, yeah, I, I'm sort of responsible like Lori, but also I hate children. So, uh, yeah, no, Linda's <laughs> where it's at. I love Linda because Linda just does whatever she wants. Uh, she's mouthy. Mm-hmm. Um, she's horny. She smokes. She drinks. She has sex. She's an asshole. I love Linda. Yeah, I love that Linda's an asshole. That's my favorite thing about her is because we don't get a lot of assholes. Like, we get bitches in mm-hmm. movies. And I think, like, of course, we're talking about, like, gendered Gendered stereotypes and whatnot here. But there is a huge difference between a girl who's being a bitch and a girl who's being an asshole. And I think we know that. Linda's an asshole. Yeah, like in this room, (laughs) I think you're more of a bitch. I'm more of an asshole. (laughs) I'm fine with that. I think that's one reason I love Linda so much is because you don't get to see asshole women that often. (laughs) And what I mean by that is that she's not like conniving. She's not evil. She's not catty. She's not mean-spirited. She's just blunt. <laughs> yeah, she's rude. <laughs> she's kind of a dick about it. Like, th- here's the here's the thing with like in the decades since this, if you get a person who is like a Linda, then they're more like a you know stereotype female comedian pick me kind of girl who can hang, but in an unpleasant way. Yes, this be- feels way more natural. Yes, like. Linda's attitude of be like because Linda definitely has like one of the guys kind of attitude, mm-hmm. but it was before I think we learned that that was a stereotype that people could be or that there was like an intentionality behind it. Linda just is this like mm-hmm. she's not trying to impress anybody. She's not trying to be just one of the guys. She just is this person, and if you have a problem with it, then you can go fuck yourself. Like yeah. that is Linda's energy. I just like, love her. I also feel like she's even using Bob for her own means. She wants to get off and she wants booze. <laughs> yeah, like precisely. Like she doesn't give a shit about Bob. Like he comes up and she's like, that's cute. Where's my beer? Yeah. <laughs> like she doesn't give a shit about Bob's feelings. She's not sitting there trying to like pose and be seductive and just being like, oh, welcome back, Mr. Ghost Sheet with some glasses. Mm. Yeah. Being cutesy. <laughs> no. <laughs> she has no time and patience for these little games that she thinks Bob is playing on her. Yeah, no. She's like, um... I would like to have more orgasms and drink that beer. Stop fucking around. We got stuff to do here. (laughs) I love love looking at these characters, um, which we'll get to talk about when we do Black Christmas at the end of the year. But I love characters where you look at them and go, you are going to be a surly middle-aged woman that I will be obsessed with. (laughs) 
I love characters like that. And I mean, even before we see Linda with Bob, like we get that energy when, you know, they're walking home and Lori's like, oh no, I forgot my chemistry book. And Linda's like, so what? I forgot my chemistry book all the time. It's fine. I forget that and my math book and my geometry book. Like I don't fucking care. Who cares? Yeah. And like to some extent you could view that as like, Linda's a bad student. Linda's she's a bad, she's influence. A bad influence. But in reality, Linda's just like, calm the fuck down, Greg. It's soccer. Like that, that's very well, much her energy at all times. Especially because it's the weekend of a holiday. Right. What are you gonna you're gonna do homework? It's Halloween. Right. 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 Uh, and like the thing too is, I also think I don't even know that if it's like homework. I think she just wanted to study because Lori's a, a very studious person. That's what she does. I mean, true, but also. Lighten up. As usual, I have nothing to do. It's your own fault, and I don't feel a bit sorry for you. Hey, Linda, Lori, why didn't you wait for me? We did. 15 minutes. You totally never showed. That's not true. Here I am. What's wrong, Annie? I'm not smiling. I'm never smiling again. Paul dragged me into the boys' locker room. Exploring to uncharted territory. It's been totally charted. Just Sure, sure. Old Jerko got caught throwing eggs and soaping windows. His parents grounded him. He can't come over to her. I thought you were babysitting to me. The only reason she babysits is to have a oh, place for shit. I have a place for that. I forgot my chemistry book. So who cares? I always forget my chemistry book and my math book and my English book and my, let's see, my French book. And, well, who needs books anyway? I don't need books. And then... Annie, to me, is kind of the the middle ground here between the two of them because Annie is obviously the daughter of a cop. Um, mm-hmm. So she's always kind of got to be on high alert so that she doesn't get in trouble or get him in trouble. But at the same time, she doesn't like to have to live that way. So she does what she wants. She gets high in the car while she's driving. Fuck yeah. it. I'm, I'm now having to like switch my entire brain from being hype and talking about PJ Souls and Linda and how much I love them and saying fuck a lot to be like, and Annie's here. <laughs> Which is unfair. It is unfair. I really like Annie as a character. I think that she has a really interesting arc. I like that she she is the middle ground, though, because she took the job babysitting. She was going to babysit. She was going to try to figure things out. But then, obviously, Lori is mom friend, so mm-hmm. it's still going to get dumped on her. And because Lori's like, whatever, if you want to go have sex with, with Paul, go do what you want to do. It's mm-hmm. fine. Um, she just kind of lets it be that way. But Annie is also very kind of sure of herself. Like she's 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 pretty confident. She knows what she wants. She knows what she wants to do. She just isn't as forward about it as Linda. And I think it's because she has a cop for a dad. Yeah, she's not as, um, say, animalistic about boys. Yeah, as, uh, she's not as Linda is. <laughs> But like Lori's very like, oh, I could set you up with Ben Tramer. You know, we'll talk in the morning. Ben's not making it to the morning. Nope, he's going to explode in the next movie. <laughs> oh Sorry, <my> Ben. <laughs> I First of all, I was cracking you up by freaking out about Ben Tramer over a phone call. But then I'm just like <laughs> sitting there giggling on my end of the couch going like, he gets hit by a cop and explodes. <laughs> and like Halloween 2 peaks there. But um <laughs> But um, she has this thing where she's like, she's very interested in the boy that she wants to, to what is it, Peter, Paul? I think it's Paul. Mary. <laughs> yeah, Paul, Mary. Um, but Paul. And she has this interest in him to the point where she gets locked in like the guest house, which like put a pin in guest houses because yes. I want to talk about that kind of a thing in a sec. That when she gets locked in, she has this almost like pleading feeling with Lindsay where she's like, Lindsay. 
<laughs> because like she's like it almost feels like I'm bummed and I'm desperate, but also like I'm not taking it that seriously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it, I think Annie's great. I also bold statement for somebody who just spends half this movie walking around with no pants on, like uh-huh. in public, just in the streets, outside, <laughs> just walking outside, no pants on. Yeah, there's just children running around. Yeah, like a different time. Like it's so wild. Mm-hmm. Like she's just hanging around children with no pants on, and like that's not a concern for anybody. No. Which like Annie's not a predator. She's not doing anything bad. But she it's just, just one of those things where it's like, yeah, that's not a thing anymore. You just can't go walking around with no pants on. No, even if it's like, oh, I'm doing laundry. Like nobody would be like, oh, that makes sense. They'd be like, what is wrong with you, dude? I feel weird. Like I walk down stairs to do laundry outside and I'll be wearing like shorts and I'm like are these too short there's children running around I don't know what the rules are I, <laughs> I'm doing laundry and these shorts are fine but like they're shorter than boxers so it's like uh, is like the dad across the hall gonna be like why are you showing so much leg in front of my children like I don't know what the parameters are for normal people <laughs> yeah that makes me think of that scene in Big Daddy when he's uh <laughs> When he's giving the kid a bath and he's like, why do I have to wear a bathing suit? And he's like, I don't know the rules with kids and being naked. Sit down. (laughs) It's very much got that energy. Like that's kind of where it is where it was a simpler time and legitimately nobody cared. Like we we talked about how she's walking around in front of children. She's a high school girl walking around with no pants, presumably with like adults around. Right. Exactly. There's just a naked minor with children in the street. No one cares. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I love the three of them so very much. And I think that their, their energy together feels like a friend group. Yeah. Because a problem that I see in a lot of more modern movies is it feels like everybody is sort of playing like, oh, this is this caricature. Like, this is your type. If we were making a girl group or a boy band, like, these are the roles you all fit. And usually people who are that different to the point where they're a different archetype don't all hang out together. No. But I totally believe this energy. Like, these three girls have all been friends probably their entire lives, Mm -hmm. so they understand each other's quirks, and it works for them. Yeah, and I, like, this isn't a knock against the movie. I do wish we could have seen these three together more. I do agree with that, yes. Because they all only share a scene together, like, twice. Yes, and they're Um, all super funny. They're so much fun. I like how they play off of each other. Um, But, like, they're all also interesting as individuals. Yes, I I agree. And something else that I want to point out, too, is that, like, despite the fact that Lori is the more reserved of the group and the fact that she is, you know, she doesn't have the boyfriend and she's the responsible one, she's also not a wet blanket by any stretch of the imagination. she is not the boring one, even though writing in a different movie would specify her being the boring one. Yeah, and she's not. Like, she's she's just not as over the top as all of them, but she has no problem like cracking jokes with all of them and kind of mocking them a little bit. Like mm-hmm. it's all playful ribbing. This whole movie between the three of them is playful ribbing. Which is just teendom. Mm-hmm. And I've heard people make arguments where they're like, Lori's being judgmental. I'm like, she's not though. She's making fun of her one of her closest friends. Mm-hmm. The same way that they make fun of her. Like yeah. that's what's happening. That is such a common relationship. No, and like that's the way I've always been, which is that, especially in the Midwest, because don't let those palm trees fool you. This is set in the Midwest, allegedly. Yeah, this is supposed to be Illinois, but it was shot in Pasadena. <laughs> yes. We we could go and, like, take a, a drive right now on a day trip and go see those hedges, which apparently are perfectly manicured, still look exactly like the movie, because the people who own that house uh, are cool. That's very, very true. So, like, I don't know how it is in other regions, but this feels so authentic to how I came up hanging out with my friends and interacting mm-hmm. with friends. And, like... 
you roast the people you're closest to. That's how a roast works. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's also been psychological studies that show that like you are the quote unquote meanest to the people that you love. And by meanest, not like intentionally being harmful and mean, but in the sense that like if you're very comfortable with somebody and you have a rapport with somebody, then it's you're more honest you're more honest yeah. yeah and like you're more playful about that honesty yeah like we'll be sitting on the couch all the time no pants on because that's how we live our lives mm -hmm. and you'll just be sitting there like in a crop top and i'll be like that's right you my busted can of biscuits yeah because it's what it looks Which, like. like if you say that to anybody else that you're not close to it's like wow that's really rude right like there are certain things that you and i can say to each other that if any other person on the planet said that to me i would punch them in the face yeah exactly like, if some weirdo like came up to me on a street car and was like hey lady you look like when you crack open a can of pillsbury biscuits you know when like the stuff comes out of it i'd be like hey you want to meet my foot in your ass like yeah. i'd be so mad about it but when you say it i'm like oh thank you it's, it's, a, it's a it's a term of love and endearment and then i will make biscuits yes and it feels very good it's a nice if y'all are not getting fat roll massages your partners are fucking up man it feels good yeah see there you go <laughs> so i love these characters i believe these characters and it's see again carpenter makes it look so easy and yeah. then you find out how not easy it is in decades and decades of movies that follow like he did it so perfectly and it's like how are people so bad at trying to capture this how are you so bad at this yeah um and yeah no he's perfect um so we have the three of them and we then have this setting in suburbia. And like, I think it's really important to talk about the setting of suburbia because oh, it's, its own character. It's his own character. So you have this neighborhood. We see them walking throughout the neighborhood. And I think that is such an important thing to establish mm -hmm. is because you know, the world that you're in now, there are people around you constantly. Mm -hmm. These are families. These are quote unquote, good upstanding American citizens. And it adds this sort of intensity to it. And when you combine that with John Carpenter's score, which sounds ominous at all times. So even when they're doing nothing, when they're mm -hmm. just walking home from school, it sounds ominous. Like, you know, something bad is going to happen because the music is telling you something bad's going to happen. It's ominous, but it's like mysterious. Yeah. Because like there'll be a scene where Lori's leaving her house and dad's like, I'll oh, go say, swing by the Myers place. And it's just like. And just doing like ominous fucking shit on like a Casio or whatever he used. Mm -hmm. And nothing spooky's happening. Mm -hmm. So much of this is just her walking around this neighborhood and seeing like, okay, it's a quiet neighborhood, but there are people, mm -hmm. but it's quiet. And the only noise you're hearing is like the crackling of leaves under people's feet mm -hmm. and this score. And the score never stops. No. It's the whole movie. And. It's such an important part of this film because obviously people like to point out that like, oh, Michael is following her the whole time or the shape is following her because some people like to push up their glasses and be like, actually, um, Pinhead's name isn't Pinhead. It's the priest. But in the first movie, he's just credited as lead Cenobite. And I'm like, shut up. <laughs> right. Like, do not Frankenstein's monster this. Calm down. Like, you were, you were taking this too seriously. He literally has a name that is established in the first scene. Calm down. <laughs> right. I mean, to be to be fair. To be fair. To be fair. Um, he is established as the shape in the credits. And it's specifically to differentiate between the humanity of Michael Myers, the child, and what he becomes. I get that. Yes. But he, he literally has a name. I know. So people are going to say, don't call him by his name. Don't call him by his government name. <laughs> <laughs> by his Christian name. Exactly. So, but 
people make a big deal about the first half of the movie when it's in still daylight mm-hmm. and how Michael's just around. He's just driving around he's town. He's hanging out. He's lurking. He's plotting. He's being spooky. But even when he's not there, there is this creeping feeling, this, this mm-hmm. ominous, mysterious feeling of something feels off. Mm-hmm. Something is afoot. And the soundtrack never lets you forget it. And it's so impressive, especially considering how simple everything is. Mm-hmm. Which, like, I, I love that as, like, a design choice just in all mediums, which is how much can you distill something down to the most basic and simple form and still make it work? Mm-hmm. And this is why I love the movie It Follows so much, mm-hmm. because It Follows shares so much DNA with Halloween in terms of there's a lot of scenes of people just walking around Mm -hmm. a Michigan suburb. There's this very aggressive and like terrifying score that just keeps popping up. Even, even the songs that aren't as ominous and, and, and mysterious sounding still have like this tinge to it where you're like, "Mm, something's not quite right. Something, something feels off. Like I feel like I should be on edge Mm -hmm. right now. And Halloween does that just so perfectly because even something as simple as watching Tommy Doyle walk home from school, Mm -hmm. like how many kids walk home from school every single day and you get the POV through the car of Michael watching this kid and you've got the music and your brain puts all of these things together and goes, that kid's going to die. Like I'm, oh no, I am so worried for this kid. And then when he drives off, there's that just ultimate just of relief mm-hmm. because your brain starts going 100 miles a minute. Of stranger like, danger. Of stranger danger. What is he going to do? Is he going to take that kid? Is he going to put him in the car? What's going to happen? And Halloween does this so effectively because it is constantly playing with all of these weird deep-seated fears that so many people have that they think they're never going to have to deal with. Mm -hmm. You're never going to have to experience this. You're never going to have to worry about this because you live in the suburbs. Well, And this movie says it doesn't fucking matter. Yeah, like, what this movie does so well that so many other slasher movies, um, including ones in this franchise, don't do is there's a sense of a threat. Mm -hmm. Um, I really like, like, if we're going to start talking about Michael, we might as well start breaking him down. Um... I love this idea that he is patient and walks in the way that is often parodied where it's just like, oh, they always get there even though they never run. But he's observing things like that's kind of just what he does this whole movie where he's just observing people because he's been mm-hmm. locked up for 15 years. So he's like out as an adult who can somehow drive and is just taken in the world. He does like puppy head tilts after he murders someone and it just has this feeling of like, huh, I'm I'm a full-ass adult who has a grown man's body now and I can just plunge a knife through someone and pin him to the wall. Huh. Yeah. Like, he's marveling at the world. He's marveling at, like, his strength and how he uses tools in a way that he's just like, I never had this opportunity before. That's interesting. Yeah, and I think that that's something that gets lost a lot in Michael Myers and obviously, like, has been diluted like a motherfucker mm-hmm. over the last, you know... 40 years or however long it's been. And I think that you're totally right because the Michael Myers that we're introduced to, like as Loomis says 10 million times, he's evil. Mm -hmm. Like he just is like, well, why? What is it? What happened? How did it get? 
does it matter? Like, does it fucking matter? Because I don't think that he's like, I don't think that it matters. He's just evil and we have to stop him. And like, that is that is what we should be focusing on. Mm-hmm. Stop getting so tied up in the why and just react and just act and get this done. Well, to be fair, Dr. Loomis says a lot of things that if you don't have context, seem insane. Well, yeah, because he's Captain Ahab. Like, yes. So that's why he's like, he's, he's looking being, for his white whale. He's just hanging out at like the Myers house, just scaring children and then having like a really pleased look on his face when he's like, get the hell away from there. And he just sits in the bushes like, hmm, I did that. Yes. Yeah. I, I scared those children. He's having a fun time. <laughs> and then like the cop comes up. He's like, are you saying everyone's lined up to slaughter? He's like, like he immediately is like goes from like that to a hundred because he's. He's so riled up and like he's correct, Mm -hmm. but without the context of knowing how correct he is, he's off the wall. You must think me a very sinister doctor. (laughs) Oh, I I do have a permit. Seems to me you're just plain scared. Yes. Yeah, I I am. uh, I met him 15 years ago. I, I was told there was nothing left. No reason, no uh, conscience, no understanding, and even the most rudimentary sense of life or death, of good or evil, right or wrong. I met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. I spent eight years trying to reach him, and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. And what's also really funny is, like, when that movie Don't Look Up came out and a lot of people were talking about how this is a very good example of what happens when there are actual problems, you know, like a pandemic, where scientists will say, hey, we need to do this, and people go, hmm, but that's going to make everyone really upset, so Mm -hmm. what if we didn't do that and it's like well you're gonna put people in danger and it's like will we though because like we don't want to like hurt feelings or make people scared and worried it's probably fine it's probably fine and like that's exactly what's happening in halloween like loomis has been very forthright he's like i am his doctor i know what the risk is this is a problem you need to do something and everyone's like but it's Haddonfield. Like, that doesn't happen here. It's mm-hmm. fine. We don't want to scare people. And he's like, but they're literally going to die. Like, you have to do something. And they're like, mm, but do we have to? I mean, they, they they eventually end up overcorrecting and then running over Ben Tramer. Yes, yes, so they do. The cops really, like, get into gear eventually in the night. Well, yeah, after people have died. Yeah, after they find out that a man ate a dog and stole a headstone and... Murdered a bunch of teens. Okay, yeah. We don't talk about that point in Halloween enough. Michael Myers straight up ate a dog. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's just a part that gets completely ignored. Like, that man ate a dog. And the fact that Loomis is so matter-of-fact, like, ugh, he was hungry. <laughs> it's like, what the fuck, man? Donald Pleasance is so much fun in this movie. He's having a great time. Like, he's fun in all of the movies, but, like, he goes really over the top in a lot of the later ones. Like, the end of four, where he's like, ah! 
Or five, when we get my favorite line of his entire career. Oh, yes. Cookie woman. Yeah, like, Dawn of Blessings is very fun. But in this one, like, it's it's this perfect level of, like, he still has credibility. Yes, but he is so camp in this movie. Yes, he's he's great. <laughs> Donald Pleasance is, like, a borderline drag character. This is great. He's he's wonderful. But uh, spe- speaking of Michael Myers and, like, this thing that, like, it's my favorite thing he does um, for the wrong reasons, which is, like, you can hear him breathing in the mask. You can see him do things, but my favorite noise he makes is just like, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> you just hear him like weirdly moaning <laughs> when he does stuff that it requires like any kind of like physicality. Yes. <laughs> it's just, it's real silly and I love it. So while we're talking about Michael Myers, I do want to shout out Nick Castle, the original shape, um, because Nick Castle is someone I've been very privileged uh, enough to to interview, and he is a lovely human being. But I just want to throw some like fun facts out there because if you're a horror fan, this is nothing new to you. I'm just going to be sharing with you everyone's favorite trivia facts. But if you are someone who does not know a lot about horror, some of this might be exciting to you. Um, so Nick Castle is not just this random dude that John Carpenter knew and put in a mask. Nick Castle is also a very, very well-established writer and director. So he directed The Last Starfighter, The Boy Who Could Fly, uh, Tap, Dennis the Menace, Major Pain, the Disney Channel original movie Twas the Night, where Brian Cranston plays a uh, like a Santa Claus that's also a con man, uh, which is pretty sweet. He is also the person who wrote Skate Town USA, Escape from New York, um, he helped write the screen story for Hook. He wrote the screenplay and story for August Rush. Like, Ugh. yeah. But like Nick Castle does a lot of stuff. Like he's a varied a, stuff too. And a lot of varied stuff too. Like he's a cool fucking guy. Um, so it's always really interesting to think about like, yeah, that's the guy in the Myers mask is, you know, the guy who directed Dennis the Menace, a movie that I quite love. Yeah. (laughs) Speaking of terror descending upon a small town. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But, you know, Nick Castle's like a really, really cool guy. And when I talked to him about it, he was like, you know, I've done all of these things in my life. He's like, but when he's like, when I die, I'm going to be credited as the original Michael Myers and Jamie Lee Curtis has had similar things about where she's like, I know that when I die, I'm going to be scream queen or final girl or whatever. Like all of the other movies that I've done, she's like, I'm very proud of them, but like, that's what I'm going to be remembered for. And I'm fine with that. And I think that that is such an interesting thing where like Nick Castle will post pictures of himself when he finds like Michael Myers socks somewhere (laughs) where he's like, look, I have socks with my face on them. And I think that that's such a sweet thing of how everybody involved in this movie like has really embraced the legacy of it. Oh, yeah. And that doesn't happen very often. Like, there are definitely a lot of people who feel some kind of way about their early careers. Like, Kevin Bacon only recently has started talking about, like, Friday the 13th. But for a while, he did not address that. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of people view that as, like, oh, that's, like, a low point in your career. Or, oh, remember when you did that schlocky horror movie? Despite the fact that some of the greatest performers that we have got their start in horror movies. Yeah. One of the biggest mainstream examples is, like, Leprechaun. Yeah. Hi, Jennifer Aniston. What's hey. up? Hey. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to laundry list because it's it's countless, like so many of them. I mean, yeah. fucking McConaughey and Zellweger, you know, were in Texas Chance of the Next Generation and that movie sat on a shelf for years and it only got out because the two of them became stars. Maybe should have stayed on a shelf. Yeah. <laughs> 
I have mixed <laughs> feelings. But <laughs> but like I think that that's so that that I think that that's just so interesting. And I know that part of why Jamie Lee Curtis ended up getting cast was because they found out who her mom is, mm-hmm. who's Janet Lee. Like people, I think forget that Jamie Lee Curtis is not just a nepotism baby; she's a double nepotism baby because mm-hmm. her dad's Tony Curtis and her mom's Janet Lee. Like that's incredible. Um, <laughs> but that's part of why they wanted her because they're like this is fascinating to have this like kind of legacy thing of you know the woman who's killed in psycho and then we have this final girl on halloween and i think that that's really interesting um but jamie lee curtis and laurie strode and this this final girl trope there's obviously plenty that can be critiqued about the final girl sure for sure in the way that it fits in with like weird morality politics and and purity culture and all of those things but what the final girl did, which is so vital, is that horror then becomes a woman's genre. Mm-hmm. And that is something that is always really infuriating to wrap my head around whenever I have to deal with like horror gatekeepers or people who think that like, oh, women can't handle horror, et cetera, et cetera. Because the final girl made it so that everyone could see themselves as a survivor, they could see themselves as somebody who could defy the odds in a culture that is constantly telling them that you are lesser than, you are weaker, and that you are expendable, which is, you know, a very hard way to grow up getting that. But then you watch a horror movie and it's like, no, but like we get to be the ones that survive. We're the ones that get to defeat the masked killer when the cops can't do it, when our boyfriends can't do it, when all of these people can't do it. The teen girl is the one who gets to to survive. Mm-hmm. And there has been a lot of discussion about how many marginalized people then use the final girl trope as a vehicle for themselves and the way that they can thrive in the face of systemic oppression. And I think that's why horror is so popular with so many different people, because by having an established trope, yes, there's issues in the fact that final girls are almost exclusively white. Like, I'm not attacking the intersections here, because that's an entire separate conversation that could justify its own fucking podcast episode. But what I am saying is that because this trope of the survivor is a woman, is somebody from a marginalized gender it becomes so much easier for other people from different marginalized statuses to put themselves in those shoes because this is not somebody that is coming from the absolute top of the pyramid. Yeah, she's white, so she's you know still pretty fucking high up there, mm-hmm. but she's not a man. She's not a cis man specifically. Well, also, especially being a teen girl. Correct. What power does a teen girl have? Teen girls are so, like, teen girls have less value than, like, children. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, people hate teen girls like viscerally hate them. And the fact that teen girls get to be the heroes in a lot of these stories is amazing, like is genuinely incredible. And it's because of Halloween that we have that because it took that formula from previous films and went, yeah, no, now it's a rule. And of course, half the fun in the later years is how do you subvert those expectations? How do you change those tropes? How do you flip the formula on its head? Oh, no, we have to try to write more interesting characters. <laughs> right, 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 right. Because that, that's an issue that obviously slasher movies run into where it's like, oh, no, we can't skate by on subpar writing anymore. Right. Because <laughs> like, yeah, we've seen like practically every kill. We've seen every kind of masked killer. 
So now, like, there needs to be a sense of humanity. Otherwise, you get, like, terrifier. <laughs> no comment. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but no, you're, you know, when we talk about Halloween, we talk all the time about all of the great things that it does. But I don't think that a lot of people can fully wrap their head around just how many things this movie changed because it changed, it changes the teen movie canon. Like, mm -hmm. because slasher movies are part of the teen movie canon. And that's like a weird thing I don't think people process. Like, they're teen movies. Halloween is a teen movie. It is about teenagers mm -hmm. surviving in the face of odds with adults that will not help them or are incapable of helping them. Because that's how it feels to be a teenager. <laughs> well, especially because teen movies as we know them didn't exist until the 80s. Mm -hmm. So like, They were few and far in between outside of sex comedies at this point. Exactly. So, like, you, you, you can find them, but, like, you really have to dig It wasn't through. dominant culture. No, like, they were, they were more of, like, the exception than the rule. Correct. And so you have this establishing, like, oh, no, there's a market for showing teens and making films for teens, and this genre grows up at the exact same time that, like, mainstream teendom does. Like, this mm -hmm. is the same year Animal House comes out. Right. Which popularizes sex comedies, which then goes like, oh, there's actually a market to make teen movies. That, like, gets us to Fast Times. Right. So, this is all happening simultaneously, and they're intrinsically linked. Mm -hmm. Especially in the 80s. Totally. Especially in the 90s. Totally. And, like, obviously, there is so much to be said about what John Carpenter did for horror. Absolutely. There are hundreds of horror podcasts that will happily dissect all of that. Mm -hmm. But there's not a lot of people that are willing to have the conversation about how this movie changed what was possible for teen protagonists. Mm -hmm. Because, yeah, half the fun of slashers is watching people bite it. Totally. We know that. But it's about survival. And like that's why somebody in the future like Sidney Prescott becomes so important because Ghostface is different in every single movie. It's not the same person every time. Scream is Sidney Prescott. And I think that that is really fascinating. And you get the same thing with Halloween. Like once you lose Laurie Strode, they things get a little weird. And, you know, she comes back here and there her her canon has changed she dies then she doesn't yeah like there's a lot of mess there but like part of why those blumhouse movies are so successful is because you get you get lori back mm -hmm. and regardless of like how she's been changed over the years there's something just so innate like we feel so connected and protective of lori because we've known her since she was a teenage girl. Mm -hmm. So even though Jamie Lee Curtis is, you know, living her best life, getting fat ass checks for her. For laying in bed <laughs> for, for a whole laying movie. laying in bed for a whole movie. Good for you. Good for her. Good for her. Best part of the movie. Um, <laughs> but just having her there, like, it just heightens everything because we know her. We love her. Like, we know that girl. And it's it's the that Halloween magic, because it feels so familiar, Lori is our girl next door. Mm -hmm. We see Lori Strode in the face of like a lot of these girls in slasher movies. And it's because we see Lori Strode's face in the girls that we know in our own communities. And that is why Halloween is so magical. Like it just gets it. It taps into so many of these like subconscious fears that so many people have. And 
it's just perfect. Mm-hmm. Like, looking at Halloween 1, 1978, no notes. Like, I would not change a thing about that movie. No, um... Let's let's even let's even rewind our own conversation here. I'll just a touch to like that's more the start of the episode when we we're talking about historical context because mm-hmm. there's nothing that we've said that people probably haven't said on like a couple dozen oh, other yeah, podcasts. No, there are books about this. Like yeah. if y'all have not read Men, Women, and Chainsaws by Carol J. Clover, like please do. It's one like, of the best books about slashers ever written, and there is so much incredible, wonderful deeply academic and analytical assessments of slasher films and how it relates to like gender. Like, please do yourself that favor and, and read that. Yeah. Like this episode is us talking about funsies. Yeah. And our our own thing. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) If you want to, if you want to even take it back to like earlier in our own episode, the roots of slashers, you can say it doesn't start at Halloween. Fine. That's fair. But like beeping Tom and psycho, those are about adults. Mm hmm. Black Christmas and Texas Chainsaw, those are college kids. Mm-hmm. This is about teens. Mm-hmm. And like, by extension, like, those, those are those are kids. These are children. Like, Pe- the, these people, are minors. People are, it, it, it's, it's, it's so much more shocking in its time to see kids exploited and hunted like this. Yeah. In a way that where it's like, well, you know. We all love Barb. Like if you're in a horror, if you're a horror fan and you're in the know, you love Black Christmas. It's a fucking masterpiece. And Barb rules. <laughs> Barb so much. But there is this almost unspoken language to like those characters where it's like, oh, they're adults. They're in charge of their own lives. They live in mm-hmm. their own homes. Mm-hmm. Like they, they've decided to be here. These are kids in Halloween who grew up in here. Mm-hmm. They are living under their parents' roof. Mm-hmm. This came to them. They didn't fly out and spread their wings. This is like clipping their wings yes that's the difference between these movies and that's why this one really is the blueprint and that's why i think amongst a lot of other reasons there's so much more dignity and reverence for the halloween franchise than a lot of other slasher franchises even though in terms of like overarching entries most of them other most of the other big ones are better than this one nightmare's Mm -hmm. way better like Mm -hmm. consistently Mm-hmm. But like this one movie and also the third one <laughs> is so good that it bolsters an entire franchise that we still love and we want we, we want to see it succeed. We want to see Laurie succeed like these walk hand in hand in mm-hmm. terms of like how much we love this movie and this character. And we keep signing up for like sequels that are a very mixed bag. Yeah, because we want that magic recaptured Mm -hmm. and i love that you brought up the fact that this is coming to them like this horror is coming to them because you do have that fear of the invasion i mean the kids are watching the thing from another world the thing from another planet which whatever is the actual long title of before it was just the before it was just john carpenter's the thing yeah like so he loves stories about invasions and people being places that they're not supposed to be Mm -hmm. And I think that is such a visceral fear that I think is kind of universal. I think there is a universal fear of the invasion. It's violating. It's violating. But people, I think, for the most part, don't have to think about that fear very often unless you're marginalized. And then Mm -hmm. you think about it all the time. Oh, yeah. Because it is a constant threat. The the thought of survival. Yes. Lori's just going about her day. Probably, Probably never had to fight for her life in this movie up until when she does. 
And yet there is this music that says, mm, no, there's danger because of just any anyone can be a threat. Like that's the dark magic of Michael Myers, like, right? Like this idea that we embody him later where it's like, oh, there's evil and it inhabits him and it can go into like his niece in the fourth one or mm -hmm. corrupt an entire community in subsequent sequels, which God, I really hoped we were going to get through this whole podcast episode without having to talk too much about the sequels. But there's this like looming threat, whether it be like cults or anything else that like anyone can be corrupt. You can corrupt innocence of a child and make mm -hmm. them a monster. But like the reality of it is in this movie, it's just, just one kid. Mm -hmm. There's, there's something wrong with him. He had a bad day, something, some wire tripped in his brain, and this is who he is. And anybody could be that guy. Mm -hmm. Any dude driving by you in any car, maybe a little too slow, could be that guy. Mm -hmm. Everyone has the potential to be a threat, regardless of where you live, and that's why it's effective. You're absolutely right. And something that I think is interesting is that you're right. Lori has likely <laughs> never had to fight for her life at this point. But even still, she knows to be on edge. Mm -hmm. She knows something is off. She's been seeing this thing she's around. She's aware of her surroundings. She's aware of her surroundings. She sees the, the bushes. She sees the laundry drying outside. She knows something is up. And it's that, that, it's that needing to believe your gut mm -hmm. and trust your instincts that we didn't see very often until this movie. Yeah. And like, even if he's just standing there, menacingly like even if that's just the case people don't do that right like michael myers guy in your neighborhood growing up did that because he was trying to be like i'm being spooky but like a guy standing by some bushes there shouldn't be a guy standing there he should be like walking he should be on his way somewhere maybe cutting his lawn there shouldn't be a person standing there right someone in the backyard there shouldn't be a person standing there this is off Yes. This is not yes. normal behavior. There's something wrong, and she's very aware of it. She, yes. It's just like, it's not been threatening. It's just not normal. Yes, and I think that showing those moments are what makes the horror so effective because it's validating. Like, you're not crazy. There is something fucked up. Something mm -hmm. is wrong here, and you were right to think it. And, you know, it, it ultimately, this is a story about Lori's survival. She could not save her friends. She could not help them. And her community was also not going to help her. Mm -hmm. She had to save herself. Lori and there against is, the world. It's Lori against the world. And I mean, she does save Tommy and Lindsay. Like, she saves the kids. Good for them. Mm -hmm. um, but ultimately, like, this is the story about one woman's survival in a scenario where she's not favored to win this. And there's something so powerful about letting a teen girl be the vessel for that for that win, for that championing. And I am just forever grateful to John Carpenter and Deborah Hill for crafting this just incredible story, for changing the landscape of horror, for changing the landscape of teen girl movies, but most importantly, for inventing a character that makes so many people across generations, across gender identities, across races, religion, sexualities, feel like they too can survive in the face of abject terror. Mm -hmm. That fucking rules. <laughs> it really does. And on that note, the time has come. Halloween is asking you to the prom. Is it a yes, a no, a maybe, or are you buying a ticket so they can go on their own? 
dude, it's Halloween, of course. <laughs> I assume. I, I think that there are only two genuinely good Halloween movies because Kills, unfortunately, retroactively made 2018 Halloween worse. <laughs> but that's your opinion. I will. Hey, when am I ever going to get the opportunity to really just let off how much I like love and have seen so all of these movies and yet don't like most of these movies? <laughs> God damn it. Just give this to me. Okay. You can have anyway, it. with that out of the way. Yeah, this movie's a fucking it's perfect. It's a masterpiece. Yeah. You don't change anything about it. Even with this movie is almost like some of the best bands of all time, like R.E.M. or, or mm-hmm. Joy Division, if that's your mm-hmm. kind of thing, where. You can listen to that and go, yeah, I don't get it. I've heard other people do this before and, you know, they've done it better because right now there have been so many people who have like either been influenced by that band or influenced by a band that was influenced by that band by influenced by that band that the original band doesn't seem unique anymore. You don't realize without the context and understanding of why this was so good and so effective that it just looks fine. Like, but then you actually unpack it and go, no, this is fucking genius. And he made it look so fucking effortless. Mm-hmm. So no, you're absolutely right. What I'm saying is you got to be a fan. <laughs> you know, you got to actually digest it. Totally. And I will say, I say totally a lot on this podcast totally. in general. Um, it's part of my vernacular. It is Linda's fault. Like if you were ever curious, it is her fault. Yeah. I, for the longest time, had a Fright Rags shirt with Linda on it that just said totally above its head. Mm -hmm. Um, But then my boobs got too big, and then it warped the shirt, and it made her look like she didn't have a mouth. (laughs) So I don't wear that shirt anymore. She kind of turned into one of those goldfish with the giant eyes. Yes. That's what happens to a lot of people's faces on your body. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So I don't wear that shirt anymore. But um, (laughs) yeah, if you've ever noticed throughout listening to this podcast, like, wow, BJ's is totally a lot. It's Linda's fault, because I love PJ Souls. (laughs) And people probably would have gone like, oh, it's Clueless. Yep, nope, it's Halloween. <laughs> yeah, gotta trace it back even further. Yeah. <laughs> Everything has a root. <laughs> well, friends, that takes us out on 1978's Halloween. You can follow the show on Twitter, Instagram at This Ends at Prom. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at BJ Colangelo. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Velocitraptor, Velosa underscore trap underscore tour. As always, thank you to the Sonderbombs for allowing us to use title as our theme song. They have a new song out. You should go listen to it. Yes, it's called The Star. It has just dropped by the time that this episode comes out. And it's like, it's real dreamy. Big, big fan. Continue <laughs> to support the Sonderbombs. They continue to do lovely music. And I just love everything that they do. But speaking of other bands that I love everything they do. Hey, BJ, you want to hear about our indie shout out this week? Yeah, tell me. It is, and I quote, music for mall goths. Is that the band name? No. Oh. But like, that's their bio on Spotify. Oh, that's perfect. <laughs> so um, I, am ca- I am shouting out soft cult, a, a soft cult of the thorn, if you will. <laughs> and <laughs> I specifically wanted to pick a, a band for this that has the right vibes while also being like kind of stripped down to really feel like a John Carpenter sort of equivalent. Nice. And so Soft Cult does uh, basically like a lot of shoegaze style music. It's for, for, for gloomy girls out there and sign me up. Yeah, exactly. I figured you would love this. And so it's all very good. It's very, uh, it's all, it's all very emotionally charged, but also 
just vibes. It's you know, if you've listened to Shoegaze ever, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It all sounds like this, and that's not a bad thing. So they've been releasing singles pretty consistently for like two years, and not one of them is bad. So just pick your poison. Their newest one is called One of a Million. So maybe start with that if you feel like it. Well, alrighty, everyone listen to Soft Cult and as always, save that last dance for us. Okay, bye. <laughs> Totally insane. I'll be totally wiped out. I totally never show. Totally charted. Totally. Totally. Totally silly. It's totally dark. She's totally not here. Totally. This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me.